Welcome to the Loose Filter Project. This is our newest podcast. Today, we are going to be talking with Stephen Thomas, who is a professor of piano at uh, California State University Stanislaus, about uh, the composer Johannes Brahms, about his music, his piano music in particular, and uh, one work specifically that Dr. Thomas is in preparation for, for a recital. And uh, we hope that this podcast, if you are not familiar or would like to be more familiar with the works of Brahms, will give you a sort of nice... Uh, entree uh, into his world. So thank you, Dr. Thomas, for being here. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Uh, we, uh, in, in our previous um, podcast, we talked about an idea uh, in, in a piece by John Adams called Naive and Sentimental Music, that there are sort of, one could consider two kinds of composers, naive uh, or sentimental composers, with the naive composer sort of uh, following his or her own internal dictates and, and um uh, you know, creative uh, inspirations without much um, awareness of uh, where they fit into their tradition, what sorts of craft they're practicing, etc. It's more for the naive artist about genuine expression. And then on the other side of that coin would be a sentimental artist who is, uh, while chasing after genuine expression, is also very aware of the tradition in which they're working, what kind of craft uh, they're using, etc. So to, to sort of start our conversation here and get into the world of Brahms, in your, what's your sense? Do you think that Brahms was either more naive or more sentimental of an artist? Well, I think he fits pretty closely in the sentimental category simply because uh, he was, uh, as we say, the king of revision, right? I mean, he was so aware of his craft and so aware of his predecessors, not least Beethoven, um, and of how... Uh, you know, remarkable their control of form was, how remarkable the, their use of motivic uh, development was, that he, he felt that he, he had to extend and develop that tradition, I think, uh, to the extent that, you know, the, the famous story is that it took him 20 years to write his first symphony, um, whereas, uh, you know, I don't think... Uh, Beethoven took nearly that long. If he'd done that, he would have never only finished three or four, which is actually what happened with Brahms. Right, course. he right. only finished four symphonies. Well, and as compared to Berlioz, who turned out a symphony just you know four years or so after right. the ninth, it took Brahms half his life almost. Right, and know. of course, this is somewhat influenced by the the way he was introduced into the musical world with this the the, the uh, flags and banners of Schumann's proclamation that he was you know the the next sort of uh, what should we say at least for Germanic music, the, the musical messiah. So could you speak to that a little more? I mean, that's a story that musicians know, but a lot of our listeners may not know. So a, a young Brahms made his way uh, to Schumann and to right. meet with Schumann, who at the time was obviously already very well-known. Well-known and also the editor of an influential uh, music magazine, the, the New Musical Times, which uh, you know uh, could be a good launching pad for a young composer. And he uh, got an introduction through his friend Joachim, and uh, took, took this to, uh, from Hamburg. He was only 20 years old at the time and went down to uh, wherever it was, I don't recall, Dusseldorf, I think. Um, you can scratch that if that's wrong. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, somewhere else, <laughs> south of Hamburg, <laughs> um, to visit. St. Louis. St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> right, obviously. He went, he went to visit uh, uh, Schumann and uh, to, to present some of his works, and uh, Schumann was duly impressed and uh, wrote an article full of, of adulation that, that did uh, certainly get the attention of the musical world, the establishment, and I think it put some, unfortunately, some, some, imp some pressure on 
uh, Brahms that he never quite got over, at least not for a long time. And I think that's part of the reason those 20 years uh, happened, you know, between his first ideas for this first symphony and then actually completing it. Now, diving into Brahms, of course, is a, <clears throat> is a vast territory. But if you could, um, and, and we started to already, but, but what is your general sense? You've played his music, and obviously as a pianist, you're able to delve very deeply and very personally into the complete work. Mm-hmm. What is your sense, if you could speak in general terms about Brahms as a person and as a composer, and maybe where you see um, you know, interplay between the two, where your knowledge of him as a person from reading about him um, or reading his letters really, you know, in the sense that you feel, the affect you feel, the expression, the personal expression in his music? Well, I think he was a very sincere and a very intense person, obviously a creative genius. I mean, that goes without saying. But I think the popular image we have of Brahms is a sort of dowdy, fat old guy with a beard. Like <laughs> the picture on my wall here is right, a, a famous uh, drawing of him playing the piano with a cigar coming out of his mouth. And he sort of looks like a short version of Santa Claus. Uh, without the twinkle, you know, <laughs> right? And, and I, Santa I, Claus is sour older brother. Yeah, and and you know, and it kind of, uh, you know, there there's some truth to that. I mean, I think he was uh, toward the end of his life did look like that, and I, you know, I think he had a, a certain seriousness that you can't miss. I mean, anybody who writes uh, a piece uh, entitled Four Serious Songs," for example, <laughs> I think it's Opus 120, is not kidding around about being serious. And, you know, the Requiem, I mean, there's a lot of music that has deep purpose, and I think that is, is typical of his personality. But, I, you know, in reading uh, recently a biography, it was, it was interesting to read descriptions of what it was like as a younger man. Um, you know, he was quite uh, lithe and athletic as a, as a younger man, and uh, a playful playmate to the Schumann children, which, you know, he spent many, many hours with in, in the early 1850s especially. Um, and, you know, he was not always this sort of, you know, I don't know, old guy character that we were, were familiar with. And his music kind of reflects this. His early pieces are huge in scope and very ambitious and, and very uh, much more virtuosic I- in uh, comparison with his later works, which is not to say they're anything on the order of list and their intent, you know, if we use list as the sort of obvious uh, counterpart to, to Brahms in the 19th century. You know, his, his sense uh, for music was quite different. But uh, you, you leave behind the large forms, you leave behind the uh, uh, over-the-top technical demands uh, starting around Opus 76 when he starts composing individual character pieces, if you want to call them that. They're not quite character pieces in the sense that Schumann wrote, but they're, they're short individual pieces that are kind of an ABA form like you find in, in a lot of 19th century composers. But these pieces are pure, pure music, and they are only, there's not a wasted note, there's not a wasted breath. Now, which pieces yeah. are these, the, just to make well, sure our listeners can sure, there's, jot there's, it down? And right, there's sort of, you really can divide it in half. There's the early pieces uh, up through, you know, the Opus 30s or so, and then he leaves the piano for a while and then goes into, um, finally, around Opus 76, back into the piano works. And there's... There's collections of intermezzi, capriccios, they have these titles, capriccio, intermezzo, rhapsody, ballade, you know, they're kind of generic titles, and intermezzo can, can mean almost anything. We normally think of it as an interlude between things, but it really doesn't have that meaning in, in Brahms' music. It's, it's simply 
I think, a title for his, his way of saying, you know, here's another piece. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think right. it's anything special. In fact, you know, he, he titles, like, for example, Opus 118, he titles it Six Piano Pieces. You know, there's a, there's a real brain teaser for you. What is this piece again? You know, I mean, it's, it's really it's straightforward. But, you know, Opus 76 is the first of the sort of later works. And then you have Opus 79, which is the two um, Rhapsodies. Uh, the G minor Rhapsody is a famous one that many people play when they're kind of at the late, intermediate, early, advanced stage. They're first Brahms, usually. Uh, and then there's uh, one, Opus 116, 117, 118, 119, all in a row, which is, comprises about 20 pieces. He wrote in the early 1890s, toward the end of his life. He died in 1897. So this, this was really kind of Brahms at his best in terms of his craft, his maturity, his, his uh, sense of purpose as a human being. But they're all tinged with uh, melancholy, I would say. Um, and I don't think he was, you know, famous for being a real jocular guy, uh, really ever, even if he had been lithe at one point. I don't know if he was ever real, real jokey. Uh, but on the other hand, um, it has just the most genuine um, human expression in these late, late works, which I've heard or read someplace that he called the cradle of his sorrows. I think. You know, whatever regrets, whatever it is that you experience in your, I don't know, early 60s, late 50s, you know, just before you get cancer, <laughs> in his <laughs> case, uh, whatever it is you experience, he so um, eloquently brought into this music. And it just, it is compelling in just its human terms. Um, and as a, from an interpretive point of view, it's, it's endless. The possibilities are endless. The ways of playing the pieces are endless. And there's no... That's one thing I really, there's a famous Schnabel quote that my teacher, Claude Frank, always used to quote uh, for us. He said, great music is always better than it can be played. And I think that is exactly what we have in the late Brahms works, is, is uh, endless possibilities and, and uh, impossible, really, interpretive demands in a sense. But that's what makes it worth doing. I've encountered the same thing working with his symphonies, that you yeah. just really, it, it's can be very intimidating, even to, to yeah. you know, sort of approach it and think that you have the key sort is, of the resources right. to bring to And the key it, is know? to start at some point and just live with it for a lifetime. And then, <laughs> and then by maybe, the end, you're yeah. like, no, I still don't have it, but boy, I love it. Yeah, yeah. And now you've been working on the Opus 118. You have a recital coming up here in yeah. not too long. Um, and so we'll be, we'll be sort of zooming in here on that piece, and you'll be playing a little bit for us to talk about more of these things in detail. I get the sense that, that Brahms was uh, sort of a man who felt out of place in his time in many ways and found solace in the past and almost used it as a sort of scaffolding uh, to protect himself. I, and this, I mean, this sort of jives with the general character, the sense of him that we get as a person. Um, and, of course, the contemporary criticism... Uh, in his day of him was that he was old-fashioned, which, uh, you know, those of us who, who perform his music from our viewpoint of today, we know that he wasn't, but uh, he definitely, uh, do you find, I should say, do you find a particular fondness for the past in his work? And uh, what is your sense of, of Brahms's feeling for his present or for the future, maybe particularly in the Opus 118? Hmm. I do think he was very respectful and very conscious of the past. You know, it kind of comes back to that first question about whether he's naive or sentimental. I think he certainly was uh, highly conscious of the past and, res and really, I think, held it in high regard. And uh, maybe this is also why Schumann, you know, respected him as well. I think Schumann, uh, you know, he always had this, this idea that the, the David, the band of brothers against the Philistines, you know, and I think he viewed, Schumann viewed, 
uh, a lot of the sort of empty display that was typical of the 19th century as definitely you know in the Philistine category and Brahms obviously an antidote to that and so in, in, in a sense I think certainly within his time he was probably regarded as, as backward looking but so was Sebastian Bach right and Very do we true. care now no. No, no not at all <laughs> you know Bach is just you know by I think any standard probably the greatest composer of any era uh, got my personal bias there but you know do I care that people were writing in the Gallant style in the 1730s while he was still writing fugues? No, <laughs> don't care at all. You know, I think perhaps there is too much emphasis um, on, well, what n what's new is good, what's new is better, when, uh, at least in the case of Brahms, uh, what he did so well, what, whether it was backward-looking or forward-looking, was just writing the way he wrote. And I think it was... Um, in a way, like Bach, sort of the realization, the summa of, of his era, you know. So. Uh, what, what in the, uh, the Opus 118 do you find innovative? Innovative? Well, or, or, uh, or we could, we could uh, broaden the scope of that question, and maybe, maybe if you could just speak a little bit about this work in particular. Um, yeah. You know, about Brahms' craft. Or well, yeah, what I find remarkable about Brahms always, and especially in the late works, is the degree of craft. And, and it's, it's almost painful. The craft is so brilliant. It's, a, it's like looking at a piece of furniture that has been done by a real artist, you know, where every single joint and every tongue and groove and every is just so smooth, it's like glass. And you're like, how do they do that? You know, I mean, it, you, you almost can't see the forest for the trees because there's so much detail in the work and that's how I feel his pieces are um, regarding his looking looking to the past um, you know the overall ABA form is, is nothing remarkable and yeah it's respectful to the past but I don't think that that negates you know the fact that it was also used in the future <laughs> um, what was what was you know looking in the past I think that was amazing was his use of counterpoint and in, in yet within his own style within a, a homophonic style we have embedded so many uh, imitative passages and uh, and canons even you know which is where one voice imitates another through a whole series of intervals and uh, the one I was thinking of showing you um, was Opus 118 number four which is one of these intermezzos and it has in it um, kind of as a premise imitation very simple again you know this is also again something I admire in Mozart less is more uh, you know, every note is the right note, and that's what makes it great, not necessarily that there's a lot of notes. And I think you see this in his, his basic idea of Opus 118, number four. Uh, we have, uh, I think, it kind of contains every device that, that uh, shows this kind of craft, this, this depth of, of integration of all these notes. And uh, it starts out with, a, you know, an imitation between the right hand and the left hand. You have the right hand playing the upper note, left hand playing the lower note but you know that's fairly simple material but it's kind of the basis for the whole piece and and I think the simplicity of it is part of the genius you know that he can take something that basic and uh, do something as brilliant as this piece is. can you can you play that cell again just yeah we have this the thing is it's often hidden and this is the difficulty for the interpreter these the amount of craft, again, you know, unless you sit down and look at every joint and corner, you know, you sometimes miss some of these things because it sounds just like, well, this is just all part of the overall, you know, 
uh, homophonic whole, which is which is also compelling. And here's what that sounds like. Now, I played that without really much emphasis on, on the imitation, but if I do, it sounds something like this. Right, so you get a little bit more of that, that those octaves. And you may think, well, I don't even like that sound as well. I kind of like the, the other little melodies, which also sound kind of imitated. They're not exactly imitated, but they certainly trade off a similar pattern. Um, but then later in the piece you find, well, you know, he really is building on that imitation. And if you show it at the beginning, then it will make more sense uh, later on when it shows up. And the type of thing I'm talking about is then, you know, on the second page of this piece, you have a whole, almost a whole page of just chords doing in imitation. And this is a um, really good example, I think, of how he, he takes just the most basic elements of his um, uh, device and turns it into something very special and, and very um, almost meditative and, and maybe forward-looking in its own way because it's so simplistic and almost minimalist, if you want. I don't think he had any sense that, you know, that well maybe John Adams will spring out of this you know I don't th I don't think that's what I mean by that but but it, it has that sort of almost uh, you know Eastern uh, sense of uh, simplicity. in the harmony which is I think quite quite beautiful and also in the depth of the bass the, the richness of the of the this the piano sound uh, I think and it's is, is just worth listening to on its own but then he takes in the very next phrase this idea of imitation another step and he does uh, this melody And he does it in canon in the tenor voice, in uh, the mostly in the left hand, but it trades off a little bit, which is another technical challenge to make it sound like it's happening in one, in one tone quality. So together, those sound like this. All right, now that's kind of busy sounding. But if you think it's busy by just in two voices, try it with everything else that goes on here. Okay, so you get a picture of, of how much is going on there. Then the challenge becomes to the interpreter, well, do I go with the big chord sound, you know, which is very tempting, or do I try to bring out what's going on with this imitation? 
or is there some you know happy medium? And this is what you puzzle with for years and years, actually. Technically, it's much more difficult to play, bring out that stuff. I'm gonna try it one more time, bringing that out a little bit more. You can sort of hear it, but I mean, it's, it's also, yeah. there's so much going on. Could you give us the big chord version? Sure. Which also, questions like these, I think, also tell us why when you listen to the recording output of a single artist across a lifetime, you end up getting really, almost, depending on the artist, right. a very differing versions right. as they revisit and make different decisions. And a, and a lot of that will, will be, uh, I mean, a lot of that will affect tempo choice, for example. It, you know, it's a little bit easier to bring all that, that counterpoint out if it's not so fast. <laughs> that tempo it's much easier than if you do it at the the full-on romantic go crazy agitato kind of feeling which is very tempting to do uh in in all 19th century piano music um but uh this piece also contains a number of other things that brahms does regularly and one is to displace the sense of meter um he loves to play with your feeling of now where is the downbeat so Brahms wrote this intermezzo in, in two four time, you know, uh, and normally you have a strong and then a weak beat. So you have one, two, one, two, right? So what does he do? He starts it on the weak beat and he starts it as if it's strong. He says two, two. So two, one, two, one. I think what it gives the music is a little more sense of flow, actually, a little more direction. It, it gets rid of the feeling of sort of, I don't want to say stopping on the downbeat, but this feeling of, okay, the downbeat is always going to kind of remind us of our vertical hold on the earth, you know. Was that right at the beginning? Right at the beginning, we get there. two, one, two, one. If you were doing rhythmic dictation, I don't know if you would know how to put it in the measure. If you so he sets up really audibly what is, uh, he sets up an expectation that, that he's going to defeat then, because it does sound like you're starting one, two, one. It sounds like it starts on the downbeat of the bar. Right. And then later on, you know, he has more imitation going on, by the way, which sounds like this. Two, one. <laughs> so it's, it's just very funny. It's two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one. It sort of shifts back and forth. Sometimes it feels right. It's like it's on the strong beat when it needs to be. And then it'll just sort of add an extra beat and then be off for a while. Do you find that that uh, really contributes strongly to the organic sense of the music? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's what he was trying to do. I think he was trying to get away from from squareness, you know, and uh, especially if you're going to be somewhat conservative in your formal style and, and other other aspects of your craft, maybe this is a way to to upset the sense of conservatism a little bit. Um, it wasn't unusual, though. I mean, Schumann did the same thing, um, and Schumann liked to do also harmonically. He would start you off on the wrong foot harmonically and say, well, how about if we start with the four chord or start with, <laughs> uh, you know, some, something other than a, a clear tonic-dominant relationship. Um, another thing he loved to do was to shift back and forth between, pulse, um, between twos and threes in his pulse. So we go along with the triplet feeling here. <laughs> We're going to switch to twos. So we go. So we go back and forth, back and forth all the time. And by the way, where is the downbeat in all of that? Well, <laughs> it's not really clear. 
and I don't think he really wants it to be clear. Here's another example. He will sometimes give you an important note just before a downbeat. And he does this as he comes out of this triplet section. So we have one lolly, two, let's see, there we go. One lolly, two lolly, one lolly, two lolly, <laughs> two lolly. And so we end up on the very last triplet partial before the downbeat. One lolly, one. So again, that sounds like this. So he breaks it down even further, you know, th than just saying, well, strong and weak beats. He also takes a weak part of a beat and makes it more important. Without sounding, I don't think, syncopated in the way we think of, you know, Scott Joplin or something like that. But, right. but nevertheless, uh, a feeling of displacement. What you just pointed out about uh, 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 his his use of time and the way that he displaces our sense of uh, of the meter is what I find most striking. Uh, one of the most striking things in his symphonies too. I feel like the way he uses time, he uh, he he liberates it. He detaches it from the way that you have to render it, you know, to make the music playable to musicians. Right. And to me, is one of the m more forward-looking aspects of his writing. Yeah. Well, I think he he kind of eliminates the tyranny of the bar line and says, you know, my expression is is this, and it doesn't happen to coincide with, with the regularity of the bar line, and I don't care. Uh, you know, it's more important, and it, maybe in that sense, he's <laughs> more naive, you know, in, in the sense that we were talking about earlier, in that, you know, he says, my, my sense of emotional expression, whatever it is, you know, overrides whatever the, the you know, the mere technical uh, uh, elements of my uh, writing have to be, and I'm going to get around that somehow. On the other hand, he may have done it so consciously, it would be more sentimental in that sense. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, something about uh, Liszt and, and, and sort of being the antithesis of Brahms, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about where, how he compared to Liszt, you know, or, or his other contemporaries. Yeah. How did he fit in as, as an artist, you know, and how was his music different from his contemporaries in that sense? Well, I think Liszt was the showman. I mean, he was the original rock star. You know, we often hear that, that comparison. I think it's true. I think he was, he was such a uh, public personality, and I don't think Brahms had that, that public persona, you know, naturally in his, his psyche at all. Um, he was capable of, of being successful in a public situation. I mean, he was a good conductor. He wanted to be the conductor of the, the symphony in Hamburg, but was passed over to two times, I think, before they finally offered it to him. He said, too late, because <laughs> his pride had been wounded perhaps a bit too much. Um, and he was well ensconced in Vienna at that point. I don't think he wanted to move. But I do believe that, that Liszt's music um, tends toward the superficial. You know, That's just my opinion. There are certainly some great pieces he wrote. But if you look at the total output, hmm. What's his batting average? Well, I, I would say less than half, honestly. I think there's a lot of music that Liszt wrote that we don't even know because it, it's just not worth the trouble. And uh, there are gonna, I know there's going to be Liszt people out there who are frothing at the mouth when they hear this, but, but I don't discount Liszt at all. I do think that he, he was uh, a remarkable force in the 19th century, and, and his, his, uh, you know, I mean, his approach to pianism has affected everything that followed. So we can't say that, you know, well, some of it was trashy, so it didn't matter. Not true. Uh, he did matter. Um, that said, though, I think everything Brahms wrote was brilliant. However, 
we only have that which Brahms himself deemed to be worthy to survive him. He burned a great deal of his music, which perhaps would have been just fine by most standards, uh, certainly by list standards. It probably would have all been just terrific. <laughs> but but uh, he, didn't, he didn't want that out there. He was very conscious of, of what people thought of his craft and his ability. And I think he, he uh, made a point of just leaving us the very best. Uh, Brahms obviously was a deeply feeling person, given the, the emotion evident in his music. I wonder if you could, as a final question, perhaps comment on or share your perceptions of some of the affect that you find in his music, uh, your feelings about it, you know, how his music's affected you, mm-hmm. etc. Sure. I, I remember when I was really first getting acquainted with Brahms' music it was in early in college, and I remember hearing shortly after I had... Um, yeah, I already learned, I think, uh, several of his pieces, hearing somebody say that he was conservative as a composer. And this was the first time this idea had come to me, and I was deeply offended. <laughs> you know, how can someone say that somebody who writes with so much feeling and passion is conservative? And I, of course, didn't really understand what they meant by that in terms of his you know, use of form and harmony and so forth. I didn't really know that's what they meant. I just assumed they meant that he was sort of, oh, I don't know, fuddy-duddy. <laughs> uptight and boring. Yeah, uptight and boring, yeah, yeah. which is, is anything but the case. And um, But I think what he demonstrates and what I relate to is there is a great deal of power in restraint, actually, and a great deal of depth you can give and sincerity you can give to your expression if it says only what you mean and not a whole lot extra. Well, Steve, I want to sincerely thank you for your time in contributing to this podcast and your expertise and your artistry. Dr. Thomas's recital will be on March 24th, 2006 on the campus of California State University, Stanislaus. What all will be on that program? I'll be starting out with a uh, Haydn Sonata and then going into all of Opus 118 of Brahms and then the last half will feature South American music. Outstanding. If you uh, are local, if you're hearing this uh, and you are local to the university, uh, we recommend coming early. Dr. Thomas's recitals do always sell out. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Jeff Mulder, our colleague on the faculty here who is serving as, uh, as sound engineer. Uh, thank you so much, Jeff. And we'd like to close, I think, and we've been talking a lot about the Opus 118 number four, and uh, we'll close with uh, Dr. Thomas playing it.